Okay, I'll bring us in. Uh, where's the music? Una momento. We don't have any. I can't Just play that on. guitar. It is. You oh. can't? No, I get to play a. I just want to keep that so I got a track. Clock. <clears throat> I should have brought in. I should have brought in that. Welcome <laughs> to, to Acme Writing Academy podcast. It's Rick Crisman here with Bob Clark. Say hello, Bob. Hello, Bob. And Mike Magnuson. Hello, Mike. And we're coming to you from the shores of. Lake, Wobega, Wake, Lake Winnebago. Today with special guest uh, Valerie Lakin. Uh, Valerie is a novelist. She's a short story writer, an educator, and uh, the smartest person in the room. I, oh, no. I, oh, yes. <laughs> I remember when I went to Budapest a few years ago and we're wandering around, and I, I thought that people there were just uh, making up indecipherable words, you know, just to impress the tourists. And it turns out you actually speak the language, don't you? No, I don't speak Hungarian at all, but I speak a couple of Slavic languages. Hungarian is weird. Hungarian yeah. is totally unrelated to most languages. It's Finno-Ugric, which has ties to, ties to Finnish, I think, and Hungarian, and really? some weird Native American language they found some tie to it. Holy smokes. Weird migration Native patterns. American? Yeah. That's I mean, cool. Hungary is really far from Finland. Like, it's a strange yeah. pattern of migration. Huh. Yeah. Well, I guess it all came down the Danube or something. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, you you speak Russian as well, right? I do speak some Russian. Right. Do you read Cyrillic? Mm-hmm. Anything else? Any other languages? Well, you and Buddhism. I mean, or? I'm I'm very I'm very rusty. Um, I like languages though, but I mean, my name, yeah. the the thing that I speak best is Russian, and then I learned some Polish and Czech along the way. When you know, when you go to grad school for Russian stuff, they make you learn other. Yeah, yeah, just it's na- like learning French and Italian and Spanish. You know, they're all related. They all feed each other. Right. The, the yeah, you just might as well pick yeah. up some Polish and, and Croatian and stuff to go with it, right? Well, <laughs> I mean, if you've come that far. Yeah, I know, right? So, uh, you have two books out, right? A novel and a collection of short stories. One, one reviewer has said about your book that beyond luminous prose, the shining intelligence as opposed to mere cleverness and narrative boldness, <laughs> what I prize most in Valerie's work is an empathy that knows no boundaries. She also uh, is all about the community, and she said in one interview that writing's too hard to keep the faith all alone, uh, to which I say, that's what you have Acme for. So thanks yeah. for driving up from Milwaukee today and, and joining us and being part of our community. Thank you for having me. Thank okay. you for that nice intro. According to the letters that we get, people want to re- hear about writers and why they do what they do and, and what is their particular life journey that brought them to this point of writing and what motivates them and so forth. And uh, Mike was talking about, you, you were talking, about, who brought it up, the business about if you're a musician, you're... Uh, yeah, at least if, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying, we were talking about that musicians or people with musical backgrounds often make very good writers, you know? Right. But we were talking, like, in, in my experience, students who I work with who are musicians, you know, very often have a, they have a natural affinity for the sound of the sentence, and so forth. They have an ear, and you can't teach an ear. You know, they. You know, you can teach people how to phrase things, what the how the language works, but you can't teach people how to use their earballs. You know, that's right. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree. And it's like they hear when it's wrong, when it's gone wrong. I think they even have a feel for grammar in a way that they might not think that they always understand grammar, but they right. do because they understand musical phrasing. Like music is a language; it's a code. 
Right. And there's parts of it that will work or will not work, and they understand that those constraints are part of what actually makes it fun and makes it function instead of just being sort of rules that they don't like that they don't want to right. adhere to. So what's so you were talking about <clears throat> when you were when they had albums back in the day, <laughs> right? You'd read the lyrics off the. So how, what happened there? I remember sitting with uh, my first album I ever bought was Neil Young after the Gold Rush, uh, cool. and yeah, I remember sitting studying that album, and then I got Zuma, which looked like a coloring book. Remember that the white album with the drawing and ink, black ink on it? Um, right. You know those old albums, and and uh, you know you go down to the mall, the Music Land, right? Music Land. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that in Milwaukee? No, that was in Rockford, Illinois. Oh, right. Have you been to Rockford, Illinois? For sure, man. Yeah, for sure. We had peaches in Milwaukee, peaches. peaches records and tapes in Milwaukee. We had apple tree records, but that was too far for me to walk to. That was like the <laughs> locally owned one, but it was too far from my house. We had the uh, a place called Capers Corner, and it was run by this nasty, fat old man <laughs> who looked like he could be uh, Ed Asner's older brother, mm -hmm. and his name was Ben Asner, and he was Ed Asner's older brother. <laughs> <laughs> And you'd be browsing around, and he'd come up, and he'd pinch your butt and shit. It was oh, really, man. it was really oh, strange. That's a price you pay for buying records. Well, and, and, and did you have cutouts? You know, they would send promotional copies out to the radio stations, and they would cut the corner oh, off yeah. of it. And then, of course, somebody would get a hold of these and said, promotional copy, not for sale. And they, these sold, instead of for $4, they were $2.25. But anyhow, you were saying... <laughs> I don't know. Well, we were saying part of the reason why, why musicians, you know, people who are really musical, might be better at writing or have a natural aptitude to it for it is that, you know, for me, the way that I got interested in poetry was just by getting interested in lyrics when I was a little kid. Yeah. And, um, and then from there, you get interested in poetry, and then, of mm -hmm. course, you have to outgrow that because, I mean, poetry. <laughs> So that was so poetry was your gateway drug into creative writing? I think writing? so. Yeah, I have tons of notebooks in like little girl cursive of me writing poems wow. that are just, oh I could never God. even begin to look at them. Oh, God, yeah. I think about some of the lyrics I used to write when I was, you know, 13 years old. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, let me sing one for you. No. <laughs> I know. I like hamburgers. Right. It's funny. I, I, I think, uh, yeah, lyrics you get. A sense of the cadence of the language, but I think even instrumental music, you know, if you has its own flow and rhythm and stuff that that language has. Like, just a moment ago, you were reading some something in Russian before I I turned on, and and I'm thinking, well, I don't really I don't understand what you're saying, but I definitely feel a rhythm and a flow and a cadence to the whole thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I'm a musician. Mike's a musician. Bob, I'm a hack. Hack. Well, you play, actually, you play a pretty decent guitar. You're going to be our, playing our music. The intro music? Yeah. Do I get paid for that? You get, yes. a, you get a, half of what I get. <laughs> 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 Do you play an instrument, Valerie? Yeah, I mean, I, I grew up, I played the flute, which is a little embarrassing to admit. As oh, a that's awesome. My daughter plays. Oh, no, I love the flute. Yeah. Yeah. I did grow up playing classical flute. Um, then I played piano, and uh, now I play guitar a little bit, and a little bit of bass and drums but not not very well on any of them but mm -hmm. i do like to tinker yeah good well we're gonna when we're done here we're gonna go out and jam in the barn i'd like to see your barn you're oh yeah we should do that yeah. sounds really cool yeah it's, it's fun yeah. times out there we're uh, i should point out we're here at mike's this is uh acme headquarters remote mm -hmm. in Manash. we're here for four days it's gorgeous you guys should yeah, see it i'm nice. staring at the lake 
if I space out, it's just because uh, me and Rox, the dog, are <laughs> nearing our afternoon nap. Is your, is your name from derived from, like, Valerie of the Lake or something? <laughs> no. Valerie Lakin? <laughs> no, no. I have a, a, actually kind of a funny name story, but it's sort of long, so I'll spare you while we're on the air. Oh, no, I think <laughs> that's, this it is what you're It has nothing to do for. with writing. That's that's what Acme does. Well, I'm the young I'm the youngest of four girls, and we were all supposed to be named Roger. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's a shorter story than you thought. And and my parents didn't have uh, health insurance when when we were all born, and so my dad would um, make my mom wait until after midnight to go to the hospital when she was in labor because he didn't want to have to pay for that extra day if you got there after midnight. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> So so they waited until after midnight when my, and I'm the fourth, you know, so I was gonna come fast. And, and um so they, they they got me to the hospital and my mom gives birth almost right away. Like they, they were gonna stop for gas and they decided not to and it was a good thing because I was born like practically in the lobby of the hospital. And then my dad wanted to leave as soon as possible. And but back then they wanted you to stay for a few days and so the nurse was saying, Well you can you can leave, but you can't leave until you name her. And they had no girl name in mind because I, they just couldn't believe that they would have a fourth girl. They just couldn't. It, it was just going to break their hearts. And Ugh. so my dad is, like, arguing with the nurse. And he, has a, he had back then a really hot temper. And they're arguing back and forth. And he's going, well, I don't understand why we can't just leave. This is a money rig. You know, this is a... And so she's like, I'm sorry, Mr. Lakin, but you have to just pick a name. And so he picks up the, the name book and just starts slipping through it from the back. And the back is boy names. And finally he gets to like some of the first girl names. And he's like, Valerie, how about that one? You like that one? And the nurse is like, that's fine. And he goes, write it down then. God. Just think, just think how close you are to have been named Velma. I know. I know. I could have been Wilma or Xena. <laughs> They're all better than Roger, though. Yeah. Roger. You'll always be Roger to me now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A girl that's, named Roger. A, that's your Acme name, your okay. official Acme I'll name. I'll take it. My okay. code wow. name, my Acme We're code name. We're here with name. Roger Lakin. <laughs> <laughs> wow, so there's so four girls. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you're you the didn't youngest. have health insurance, but then and you... That's always interesting. But then you ended up in the arts. You know, you don't think that you don't think that that's how it would happen. You know. Yeah. You mean because they didn't have insurance? <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like you, you think like you know, I, I I assume lots of people who end up in the arts, you know, they come from families who are looking, listening to Bach when they. Oh no, there was and, no Bach you know, in our house. Watching masterpiece there almost no theater. Books in our house. Really? Yeah, we had we had uh, one big encyclopedia that my mom got at the at the grocery store every week. If you right. bought two gallons of milk, you got a new, a new yeah, letter those. of the encyclopedia. Wow. We, right. We had that. We had Good like, for your body, good for one, your mind. We had one row of books. Like They had a whole bookcase in their living room that was built in, but it was empty except for this one row of books. Which Can you imagine that as a writer? I bet you guys all have. I mean, I can't <laughs> right. find enough places to put the books in my house. And they had, um, they had one row of books. One row of encyclopedias, and then the rest was these plastic collectible horses that my mom had had <laughs> since she was a little girl. She still has some. Oh, great. That was, uh, yeah. But she took us to the library a lot. I mean, she wanted us to read, but she herself didn't read. And my dad, my dad reads now, but he, they, didn't, they didn't read much when I was a kid. They were too busy. Yeah. Well, what got you into it? Reading? Yeah. How, how did you become, out of this morass, become like a super intellectual and a reader and a writer and a... 
One of my older sisters, uh, my, sec- my second oldest sister, uh, is a big, big reader, really smart, philosophy major, you know, oh. totally. She and her friends got me into reading and music and stuff. So did you, uh, when you went to college, did you, were you a literature major? Or? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was a double major in English and Russian. Literature. Russian or, language. Lo- Russian time. language. Mm-hmm. Where at? Where did you go to school? University of Iowa. University of Iowa. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's not where you went and got your MFA. No, and I didn't even really take, cre- I took, I think I took two creative writing courses there as an undergrad, but I was too afraid to, like, you had to try out for the to be a creative writing major, and I just thought that was insane. You know, same thing, like when you grow up, just regular kind of working people. Right. I mean, it sounds ridiculous to say, oh, I'll be a writer. Yeah. I mean, that was no. just off. And you have to say it like that, too. You right. Because if you don't, matter. everybody's going to go like, you know, you're not really saying that, are you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm going to be a writer. No. And I'm but going if you to say, I'm going to be a writer, <laughs> well, oops. <laughs> Mike just banged my microphone. You're not going to be a recording engineer, that's uh, I know. <laughs> because I gesticulated... <laughs> I'm going to write my memoir. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> yeah, have you have you written a memoir yet? No, I keep trying to write like personal narrative essays that mm-hmm. might eventually compile into a book, but I find it really hard to write that kind of nonfiction. Like I I, I find it I enjoy writing it, but I get really scared about sharing it with anybody, and it always I think it veers a little too I don't know sort of sappy. I'm not. It's hard. I think it's really hard. It's hard. I've been dabbling with it lately, and, and uh, it's 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 like how do you get past the self-importance of the whole thing to make it an interesting story that anybody might be able to relate to? Yeah. Of course, that's just because I've had a boring life, you know. <laughs> no, but I mean, there's beautiful memoirs written by people who aren't writing about anything tremendously exciting. They just write about it in a way that's terrific. Like, right. Yeah. Like that Beth Ann Fennelly book, Heating and Cooling, that came yeah. out a year or two ago. Like, there's nothing like in her life in that book that's so thrilling, no. but it's an amazing book, just an amazing little book. You know, the people who do it well, they just find a way to make it interesting. But I just, I have, I think there's a big intimidation factor. You have to believe that somebody is going to want to read about see, you, and I have a right. hard time believing that. I, I get, yeah, I get hung up on the I just, just like, okay, it's a memoir. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be a sophisticated work of literature that transcends, you know, and then you have to be important to tell a sophisticated, you know, like it has to be something special. Self-import- it ends up yeah. self-important. Yeah, and I, I don't know. I, I don't know if you would think if you were conceiving of a fictional character who was going to tell a story, you wouldn't think of it in those terms. You'd go to, well, I'm based a character who's lived this life and I'm going to tell a story. And then you'd, they right. wouldn't be hung up on it at all, you know. Right. I also struggle because I I am just really prone to embellishment embellishment when I just tell a story out loud. (laughs) And so I'll be writing like nonfiction and then I have to kind of check myself and like show it to my sisters or my husband. And my husband will sometimes be like, that's not exactly the way it happened. And he's not defending himself. You know, it's just stuff that, you know, he's like, well, you're kind of blowing that up a little bit. But you got spousal privilege so he wouldn't be able to testify against you in the <laughs> court right. of law. That's right. So it's cool. Yeah. <laughs> but that's, that's good, Valerie, because certainly nobody ever makes up anything in a, in a memoir. <laughs> I'm always amazed at the memory of these people have of their, the conversations they had when they were three years old. Yeah. That's just astounding. But, you know, here's what I like about writing a memoir. I know what's going to happen. Yeah. You know? Because... The, there it is. There's your plot. It's all. It's all there. That's the. That's the easy part, isn't it? Yeah. You already know what's going to happen. It's your life. You better know what's going to happen, so you can get to it. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. 
because I'm with you, Valerie. I, there's no way I would. I I can't write memoir. I, who cares? You know, <laughs> we I, care, I Bob. Think, you know, maybe somebody in my family, my children, might enjoy seeing what the old man was up to all those years ago. But you know what I do who like? Who gives a damn? I know. I I'm know. not famous. Who cares? <laughs> Who's that schmuck? As we were saying, <laughs> that's now, what I we know, were wondering too. <laughs> Rick's Rick's memoir. We've come up with the title. What was it? Uh, why the fuck should I care what that guy thinks? Yeah, right. <laughs> you remembered. <laughs> why the care? Why the fuck should I care what that guy thinks? That's a great title, Rick's memoir. It's my memoir. <laughs> but I do think when you, I love reading memoirs. Like there was this great line that Claire Dieter said in one of her craft talks last, I don't know, last summer, where she said, "Why, why do you have to write your memoir?" And she said, "Because you like to read memoirs, and at some point you have to take your turn in the barrel." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. You know, I mean, I do. I love reading memoirs, good ones, and you feel like you made a friend. And you know, you yeah. when it gets towards the end, you feel like, oh, I'm going to miss this person. Mm-hmm. I really like that, and it's not about plot. It's not about them having a really exciting life. Mm-hmm. It's just I like when you when the voice is good and you right. feel there like you, you get to know this person and live in their head for a while. That's a great feeling. So you know, I and I do think sometimes when I write nonfiction things, one thing I like is like even if I don't publish it if I'm too afraid to even send it out if I look at it again in a few years I'm like oh so that's who you were a few years ago not really mm. the stuff that I was writing about but the way that I was looking at that stuff the way, the frame sure. of mind that I was in when I was telling about that other period of my life yeah. I'm like oh that's how you perceived it at that time and it, I almost never perceive it the same way a few years later that's why I think it'd be really hard to work on a nonfiction book over a period of years because you yourself keep changing over those years and like you might not agree with how you put it down Right. Originally. Well, we were making that joke the other day that, like, okay, I'm 65 and I write it, decide to write a memoir. Mm-hmm. It takes me 10 years to write it. Yeah. Okay, so, so I get up to 65. But then I'm 75 years old and I have 10 more years to account for. Right. It's so like then a, I start to write, the, it's, it's Zeno's paradox. You just never get to the end of your memoir. Yeah, it's like that yeah. passage in Tristram Shandy, right? Have you read Tristram Shandy? Oh, absolutely. Remember that, that part, part where he does that whole bit early on about how like it's taken him this many pages just to get through his first day of his life? Right. If he keeps going at this rate, he's going to be writing forever. Right. <laughs> that right. book is so whack. Yeah, it's funny, yeah. That's what my dissertation was supposed to be about. All that. Really? Yeah, the Russian reception of, Trist- of Tristram Shandy. It was a huge deal in Russia. Wow. For like various generations, like all the major waves of Russian literature that used to, that people know about and study, each one of those waves picked up Tristram Shandy and called it like a different, like it meant a lot to those writers, and they they wow. interpreted it in really different ways each generation. So tell me, I, I'm kind of ignorant. Tell me about Tristram Shandy. Oh, well, I don't know where to start. You I know, mean, it's a it's yeah. a 18th century novel by Lawrence Stern, British okay. writer. It was such a huge sensation in its day. Like I think it started. But it's an English novel. It's in English, yeah. And I think translated, I guess. It was published in a few different volumes. I think it was started being published in like the 1760s or 80s in that range. Yep. And um, that book was such a sensation that Tristram that uh, Lawrence Stern, when he would travel through Europe, people would just call him Tristram Shandy, <laughs> and they. Yeah. And he, he actually placed a bet. He was in Italy or something. He was in Southern Europe, and he placed a bet with someone that if he wrote a letter addressed to Tristram Shandy, comma, England, that it would reach him. Ah. And it did. Oh, mm. funny. Wow. <laughs> but, you know, really that book was 250 years ahead of its time. Yeah, super postmodern, self-referential yeah. really? narrator. narrator. Yeah. 
yeah, constantly talking about the writing itself. It's been a long time. Like I remember there was like, oh, he says there's going to be a page where there's nothing on it or it's black, Yes, right? and there's a black page. There's right. doodles and drawings. Right. He promised, it's coming very up. Very funny. Here it is. And then the page is black. Yeah, all the, all, like every grad student you ever knew when you were a grad student who said they were going to write something crazy and postmodern, like Lauren Stern had done it 200 and some years before. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And that was going to be your, so what did your thesis end up being? Oh, no, I quit. <laughs> oh, you quit? I found fiction writing, yeah. I was, wow. I'm like, you quit? technically I'm ABD in Russian literature at University of Michigan. I'm all but dissertation. I did everything. Oh, really? Passed all my exams, did everything. They kept trying to talk me into just writing the dissertation. And so I, you just decided it was all bullshit away. or something? or you, you? Yeah, I mean, I started taking fiction workshops with Nick Delbanco and Charlie Baxter, and they were like, wow. hey, why don't you... I mean, Nick Delbenko sat me down in his office one day and said, like, you know, um, so you're, you're doing a PhD in Russian literature? And I was like, yeah. And he, I mean, and I was miserable, to be fair. Like, it was a bad time in that department, in, in Slavic department. It was very politically sort of contentious, a lot of infighting, and most people there were practically suicidal. It was a dark place to be wow. at that well, time. Well, that's Russian yeah, literature yeah. for you, right? I mean, it was, they were all brilliant. They were geniuses, and they were on one on one. They were all great, and they were all great to me. But they often didn't get along with each other, so it was tricky to be there. But anyway, Nick Delbanco sat me down and said, "You know, if you want to be, what do you, you know, what exactly are you doing over there?" And I said, "Well, I'm working on this thing that I started." And he said, "Well, if I could get, offer you either like a, you know, a published book of fiction or a tenure track job in Russian literature, which would you choose? And I was like. Pfft obviously a published book of fiction like right. the question was so it was like saying you know would you rather win the lottery or be a professor of, of russian and i was like <laughs> obviously i'd rather publish a book of fiction and he goes so then what are you doing over there and i was like oh I, i'm just trying to finish what i started and he's like right. yeah that's that's fine you can do that and for a while i thought i would do both but then i realized you know that it would just be vanity. Like, I did not want to teach. At that point, I did not want to teach in a Russian department. I wanted to teach fiction. I wanted to teach workshops. I really love workshops. Yep. I mean, I'm a little tired. After 20 years of doing workshops, I dig it. I don't love it quite as much as I used to, but I do right. still really love it. It's mm-hmm. fun. You, talk, you, you, you teach the whole person. You're not just trying to transmit information to a student right. who you don't know. You're, you really, like, kind of have to develop a rapport and get to know them and develop a community and trust and... and I like all of that. I think it's really good for people, even if they never publish a thing, even if they stop writing. I think that that process of going through a really good workshop teaches you a ton about the world. And teaches you a to ton be- about yourself, too. Yeah. I think to teach writing, you have to teach somebody how to be as much as what to say, because you have to be the person who can say that convincingly. Well, I think it requires you know that, that act of throwing your imagination into another character and figuring out what makes a very different kind of person tick, what makes them do the things that they do that you wouldn't do. I think that's, I think that's a big moral act. I think that that is the thing that will teach you how to understand other people and love other people better and be more open-hearted to people. I know that sounds sort of hippy-dippy, but it's really, I, I think, it's stories that make people change their minds. Facts don't make people mm-hmm. change their minds. We keep asking, how, oh, are, right. we, how are we going to get mm-hmm. the other side, whatever side you're on? You know, how are we going to get the other side to see our point? It's not ever going to be through facts. We know that scientifically. That's never gonna, it's never worked. It's not working now. But stories do work. And because, I don't know, well, I'm not sure why, but it just, it's the way the human animal works. So I actually think that that, that process of learning how to engage 
more open-heartedly with different kinds of people and different, through different kinds of characters is, you know, I think that's bigger than just learning how to write well. Yeah. I'm so glad you said that because yeah, my whole workshop experience as a student and even as a teacher is to, is to think, well, well, wow, you really need to learn how to use the dash. <laughs> or it's, it's you know, like, a, here's a paragraph. This is what you do, you know, like yeah. the, all the technical machinations of the language. That stuff's fun, too. But right, it's but not that's not really what it is, is yeah. it? It's about the person who's going to try to be another person. Yeah. You know? And if you can try to be another person, then you become bigger by the end of it. Like, every story yeah. stretches you. Every story you write stretches mm -hmm. you, makes you, if you do it right, it makes you a bigger person. Like, you were asking me about instruments, I play the drums a little bit only because I had I was writing a character who played the drums and I wanted to understand I was playing I was writing well, this character who was like a 12-year-old boy super into drumming right. and I was like I wanted to learn just rudiments you know the way kids do mm -hmm. just to see what that felt like in your brain and it feels amazing I learned that you know that like yeah, you, you just zone out it doing does. these rudiments and yeah. you know to somebody else you know, it probably sounds horrible and so boring but when you're doing it it's like it's it's exercise, it's zen, it's meditation, it's, it's intensely, you know, con intense concentration. Mm -hmm. It's all this stuff. It's creative, you know, and I would have never known that if I had just watched a kid play drums. Like, I had to play the drums for several months to be able to, and I'm sure it's not the greatest rendition of a character, but it, I'm, I'm glad I wrote that story because of what it taught me. That's great. That you'd go to all that trouble to, just for a story. Well, I wouldn't do it if it was like coal mining, but I mean, playing <laughs> Would you do it if it was the oboe? <laughs> yeah, but I wouldn't write about, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. Would you do sure, it if yeah, it was... I mean, I, I do, I like to do the things my characters do. The sousaphone? Would you well, learn sure, sousaphone for a character? Any instrument. I would try, any, I mean, I'd try any instrument just for the fun of it. I know, right? right? Me I too. Like that too. So What's what the happens? weirdest thing you ever learned how to do to be able to write about it? Because you do nonfiction too, so you you probably right. done well, some crazy things. I you know here's the thing is I had a, I I've I've never been able to do that. Like I I, I uh, all my fictional characters are sort of I don't know, I kind of they're too close to me. So like you know I mean yeah. I don't I don't I don't I'm not really a good person to discuss assuming characters. I've done a bunch of it like writing like TV pilots and screenplays where I've become those other characters. You know kind of. But that's a different thing than writing fiction, you know? Mm -hmm. I write from my voice, which sounds like me, and then I, I write about me. So then what's happened to me is, you know, I, I started out in college and flunked out and worked in a factory for eight years. And, you know, I, I, I repossessed furniture. I, you know, did all these, these jobs. And, like, I don't know, I write about the things that I did, Be, you know, and the people I met, you know, that, how I was maybe in that world, mm -hmm. you know? I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. And you too, Bob. You write from experience. Uh, yeah. It's, um, it's difficult to say because without the experience, you know, how can you write, how can you write believable fiction if you haven't, you don't have necessarily have to have the experience, but you have to have possibly been around people that have had the experience. I have a question. When you, when you make a character, develop a character, do you, do we all have a tendency to give them traits that we see in ourselves, we admire in ourselves? I tend to give my characters their best sides are things that I think are traits that I have, <laughs> whether that's good or bad, and whether I have them or not. It's, it's what I would like to think that I have. 
Sometimes, and, and I mean, I don't, I'm not saying that I write characters, they're Bob Clark, no. But some things that I see, and let's, I'll be honest, some things that I admire about myself, does that sound arrogant? No. We all have no. things we admire about sure, ourselves. Sure, I like to give them to, certain things to characters. For me, it makes them um, maybe not more personable, but more, I, I feel more in tune with them, understand them better. If I can give them some traits that I recognize in myself, good and bad, mm -hmm. and I have don't where I have more bad traits than I have, than I have good. But without the experience, you know, I always we always used to say to younger people in workshops, you know, you know, you, you haven't lived your life yet. You know, how can you come in? You're what 19 years old. Uh, you're trying to write stories about the big wide world, and most of your opinions are coming straight from your parents anyway, because you're still a kid. Every time I've had a, a really young writer be really good, it's because they had a messed up childhood. Yeah. Like really yeah. aged beyond yeah. their years. And so mm -hmm. you don't want to wish that on anybody. <laughs> no. 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 And I'm sure they give their characters the same, you know, that, that's what makes them so interesting. Because mm -hmm. you got a messed up childhood. That messed up childhood leaks onto the page. A lot of times, no matter what you're writing, because of your messed up childhood, you can write about an adult 50 years old, but that messed up childhood is is still there. It, you know, we were talking last night when we were sitting around the fire and uh, we were talking about your uh, your uh, presentation at uh, Pacific U and uh, how uh, you're talking about the normal, getting out of your normal zone into where the story actually is. That's for the writer too, you know. The writer, you're writing, you're creating this stuff in your head. You've got to get out of your normal comfort zone if you're going to write that character you've got to get in you know you've got to get out of your safety out of your little safety net too yeah. get do that do that what do they call it the, the high wire act i guess which is pretty much what all fiction writing is it's a high wire act you know you've got to have when you're up you're up there alone and there's probably no net below you you've got to believe believe you can do it you got to pull it off yeah we were talking, we mentioned the arrogance last night, Mike did when he was saying to you. And that's really just the arrogance of thinking you can write something of three or 400 pages that somebody will actually pick up and start on page one and close right. it up on page 300. You know, that there's an arrogance there. Mm -hmm. Thinks, yeah, goddamn right, I can do it. Yeah. Just read. <laughs> I don't know. I think the, yeah. thought, the thought of, you know, I've written a lot of short stories, but uh, and only recently have been getting into more long form. And it's unbelievable. You just have to get up every day and push that rock up the hill, that same damn rock, you know. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, Valerie, you, for instance, do you, do, you have, do you keep a regular writing schedule in addition to oh, you got your day-to-day -day life, your teaching and so forth, but, but how, do you, how do you keep yourself on the page? Yeah, I try to keep a regular writing schedule, but, um, you know, when life gets in the way, um, Definitely, the writing comes a lot easier when I write every day. There's mm -hmm. this great mm -hmm. short piece. I think it's from the New York Times archive with Walter Mosley when he talks about writing every day. Have you read that? No, uh, I've read Walter Mosley. Great line. Where he, t he says it's it's sort of like building a fire. Like you have those few little embers, and if you let it go mm -hmm. out, you have to rebuild it from scratch the next you know the next time you get back to it. Whereas if you keep it going every day, there's right. still some smoke, there's some substance to it, and you just go back in, and, it, and you can keep it going. Uh, oh, but nice. if you let it go out, and I think that's really true, because one thing, oh. I, the main thing I struggle against as a writer is um, 
I have a lot of trouble believing that I should be doing it, that it's worth doing, that anybody gives a shit. That's mm-hmm. really hard for me to sustain wow. faith in the in the process. And right. so if I'm doing it every day and I just carve out like, you know, when I when I when I'm on a roll, I'll just I'll say, you know, until noon I can only write or maybe read a little bit of poetry. And if I finish a certain number of words, then I'll let myself quit early. But until I've got the words or it's noon, then I, I stay there. And as long as I do that, the more days that I stack up where I haven't missed, it's like jogging. You know, it just it just becomes automatic. You go in. It's easier to get going. It doesn't feel as hard. And you, you just believe in it because you do it almost like a habit. Whereas as soon as you stop, you're like, oh, right, sleeping in is nice and why did I think that mattered and right. you know you just start questioning it all over again so if you have to you have to make it a regular part of your just habits basically yeah. and it's hard to do with you, know, you got a basically full-time job yeah. you know more than that probably they run you know you gotta yeah, work hard. your ass off and you know I have trouble I, I don't know how you manage this but you know we go and and teach out at Pacific University you know 20 days a year mm-hmm. and then when you're out there I'm not I don't know. I do some writing usually, but it's only because I got to give a reading and I want to button it up so it sounds funny or something, you know. Right. That's not really writing though. I just I tune. I'm tuning something, you know. Yeah. You know, but well, like I think I, tuning counts as writing. But then I get back from being gone from ten days, and I got, I got nothing, man. It takes it oh, takes yeah. days mm. to. I mean, I just can't get the. You know, it it can last like especially the one in the winter time. You know, mm. I come back. And there's, you know, it's winter here in Wisconsin. There's nothing to do. And I'll be in my office for days on end, you know, nothing. Really? You know, yeah, yeah, I'll be looking at you. T- and after being all inspired to write by all these great writers and stuff, I'm back there and, you know, I'm watching YouTube videos on, you know, drumming or <laughs> barbecue or yeah. whatever I'm interested in, you know. Maybe yeah. you need to plan like a little two-day vacation after it. Maybe you're just tired. No, I'm sure yeah, that's definitely it. tired. I used to get, yeah, I didn't used to get so tired. Now I get, I get tired in my old middle age. Yeah. Shh. I do. I get tired a lot easier. My brain gets tired, you know, and I can't concentrate as well as I used to. And so I find myself just like, you do sometimes, I just have to build in a couple of days off. Just, yeah. just take them off and then not beat yourself up about it. So that's your pattern though, is, is, I mean, I mean, not going away from the residency, notwithstanding and stuff though, but you try to like, get up and try to put in some hours every day if possible. I try, but that's a pretty recent thing. When I was, until like five or seven years ago, my my convention was just binge writing, just ah. total binge work on everything. I would prefer to just binge write and binge work. I love mm-hmm. to just get cranking on a project and not, you know, just work for 12 hours straight on anything, whatever it is. If I'm doing my taxes, if I'm right. building a new patio, whatever it is, I love to just stay in one thing for crazy long periods of time, like that right. drive other people crazy. They can't, they're like, how, we got to take a break. Um, I like to do that. Like, that's just how my brain works best. But I just find that I, I can't, it just, you can't live a normal life and do that. You can't put everything on hold and not answer the phone and not pay your bills. For I used to do that when I was in grad school. You know, I would just right. work on a story for mm-hmm. days and days and days. It didn't matter. I was like 20 something. I could stay right. up all night and who cared? And but your life starts to fall apart when you're older. You, I can't not sleep like that. Right. So, yeah. So then I, I just didn't write much for a long time. And, and, then, and then I started to try to do the, like, every morning writing. And that has worked pretty well when I can keep it up. But there are times when, like, the year just gets too busy and then I, I won't write for a few weeks or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I, I knew Lee K. Abbott, God rest his soul, he died yeah. He died recently, you know. And, and when I was hanging around him taking his class, 
he said that he just because his he was a professor at the university and he went he went and gave readings and he was just busy as crap. So he would like know what he would think about the story in his head and he would only be able to write like Thursday afternoon and Saturday between you know noon mm. and four. Wow. So and that's all the time he had. So he would just go blast this out and then he wouldn't be able to write the rest of the week. You know. Uh-huh. And I, I just I couldn't do rhythm is important to me. Yeah. Do you- I mean. So do you write every day? Like you write every day? When morning? I'm in a good, yeah. I try yeah. to go out there and sit there, you know, and if, and if I can't come up with any anything on the computer, I'll uh, I hand yes. write. And I have a I have a uh, 12 by 16 foot whiteboard in, in my office, and I just I storyboard because uh-huh. that's fun. I mean, I don't think that's really writing, but it's sort of, you know, you're thinking about what's going to happen it next. Is. And, it, it, it all is. Yeah. You know, um, you've got to imagine it. Sometimes you yeah. imagine it as... The hand is putting it on the page. Other times you imagine it in advance and you say, now, how can I execute this? Right? Right. Mm-hmm. I'm, trying, I'm trying to be less hand on the page and more imagine it in advance because I've always been such a hopeless pantser, which is great for short stories. You know, you can just kind of sentence follows sentence follows sentence and then, ooh, you got a little slice of something and it's over. Because you really like to wiener around with the sentences. I do. I like to wiener around with the sentences. It's an unfortunate infinitive. You know? To wiener around. Yeah, I I like that. To wiener, I like to wiener around with the sentences. And, and, you know, even as a composer, I'm a noodler. Right. I just sit at the piano and I'll just noodle around with something. And they're like, oh, that's kind of cool. And see (laughs) see where it goes instead of, like, like Mozart sits down and envisions... 20 minutes of music and then just takes dictation from his brain and puts it on the paper. Wow. Yeah. You know that, yeah. you know that Zadie Smith essay, That Crafty Feeling? No. Oh, you guys should read this essay. It's, it's by Zadie Smith. It's in her book of essays called Changing My Mind. And the essay is called That Crafty Feeling. And uh, it's all about writing novels. And she claims that there's like only two kinds of writers. I think that it's a spectrum. But anyway, on the two ends of the spectrum are what she calls a micromanager, which is like a noodler who you know, won't move on until to, set, to sentence number two until they've perfected sentence number one and they, mm. you know, they just work, tinker, and, mm. and they, they accrue a novel that way. And the other end of the spectrum is the macro planner and they outline and, you know, plan and, you know, have a storyboard and all the rest of that. So yeah. where do you fall in on that? I've, I change, yeah, I'm somewhere in the middle. Like, uh, mm. when I'm stumped, I think when, when the writing feels like it's coming most naturally to me, then I guess I'm noodling. Like, that's the part I enjoy the most is when I get a good phrase and then I, you know, you tack another phrase onto that and you're like, oh, I got something there. I don't, mm-hmm. you didn't plan it, it just came to you and then you just keep adding to it. Right. I think yeah. that's the most fun kind of writing. Mm-hmm. But then when that dries up, I'll yeah. start planning, I'll start outlining and, you know, and thinking. And then I think I can get t- thinking too much. And mm-hmm. then the, yeah, so I probably naturally am a bit more of a noodler, but. I do think that there's something to be said for, for mapping out a story, especially with a novel or something. Because when you map it out and outline it, then you can relax and quit trying to hold that whole plot line in your head and then just noodle on each scene because you know kind of where the scenes are building toward. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What about you, Bob? I, uh, I'm one of those people that... Uh, I, it, it comes down to personality, I think. I, I, uh, I have to have a time... To write every day, if if possible. Then other days, you know, like all of us, we, something gets in the way and you can't do it. But I find with myself, with anything I do, with writing, with uh, exercise, back when I used to jog or whatever, I could just go, 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 go every day, boom, 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 boom. 
but let me skip a day in that jogging. And the next day after that, it's like, eh, maybe maybe we'll skip one more day. Right. And then one oh, more day. Right. And one more day. Next yeah. thing you know, you're done jogging. That's right. Um, you're eating carbs again. It, yeah, right. It's like that for me with, with writing, too. If I don't discipline myself, and I'm a very undisciplined person, if I don't discipline myself and force myself to sit there down at that desk, turn on that computer, and try and get some work done, and even if it's only... Maybe I don't advance more than a page, mm-hmm. right? I've still done it. Well, if you got you know, if you advance a page, so, then that's well, yeah, three sixty five pages a year. So that's yeah. what they always say. Yeah, and it's each is to you know we all we all come at it from a different direction. When I when I was uh, working on some other novels, I was raising two teenage daughters, and I had to write on the weekends. I would get up at four four thirty in the morning and write until noon when my two teenage daughters would get out of bed, you know, <laughs> Saturday and Sunday. And it was really the only time I had because during the week I was working and uh, the kids, there were activities or whatever, and uh, I just couldn't do it. So that was when I did it. Come the weekend, from four in the morning till noon, that was the time that I was going to write. Um, now, since I'm unemployed, I'm actually retired, I guess. <laughs> uh, you know, I have all this time to choose from, so now I've picked out a time Five to seven, every day. I'm at the desk at five o'clock. Whether I'm getting anything done or not, I'm still there because if I don't, the guilt mm-hmm. between me and that guy in the mirror. You know, I look at it, you're brushing your teeth, and I'm saying, "Yeah, you really screwed up yesterday, didn't you? You just <laughs> let yourself get away with another one." And it's, I think I don't know if people that don't write understand the kind of discipline it takes to sit down day after day and flail away and like you say always in that that, that little nagging voice in the back of your head is saying nobody's gonna read this okay so here's i beat myself to death so here's the question then and and one of our listeners actually wrote in with this question what is it that compels you to write Oh, why, do it, why do it at all? I oh. mean, if, if it's such a pain and it's so hard to right. discipline. Yes, yes, he's raising his hand. Here's, I love okay, it. Love it. Here, here's my answer. <laughs> I, I'm compelled to write because Mike Magnuson calls me horrible, filthy names if I don't. Ah. Mike, will you do that for me, please? <laughs> <laughs> well, I go way, way back with Bob. <laughs> well, I'm giving you permission. Okay. Well, you know you what? A record of it. We, we actually do have the Acme Writing Academy workshop yeah. going now. Yeah. We're, we're 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 workshopping each other's works. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we do. Yeah, we're, we so meet we're in Google Hangouts and stuff. Really? Yeah, yeah, once a week, yeah. and and uh, we're we're kicking each other's butts. Once and, a week is pretty often. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we're not always workshopping. Sometimes <laughs> we just you know are, are like you know getting inspired and speaking. We about well, we we take more your approach to workshop where we address the person. Yeah, we're working on the whole person. We're the whole person, not so much the writing. Don't start with the abs. But you know that that. What I like about it is, for myself anyway, I'm getting feedback from two people whose opinions I value. Mm-hmm. It's not open season on a, you, know, you hand out 15 copies of your work in a workshop and you get this, that. A lot blah, of random blah. stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, for me, it's I'm getting feedback from two people who actually I want to be there with. You know, right? And, and and I value their opinions. And if they say something, you know, Bob, this, this you got to work on this. They're and usually you know, they're usually it, right. And it's you know it's a 
I, I don't think you think of guys behaving sort of this way, but they do, you know. So like it's like a, like we are all gonna help each other get to the end of the book, and right, you know, that's the goal. That's right. You know? So like you know yep. the people in the work. There's it's not a competitive thing. Nope. It's no. like you're gonna do this, and I'm gonna do whatever I can to try to help you do that. You know, right. yeah, it's pretty. It's pretty yeah. neat. Yeah, the three it's of real us are networking and nurturing. We're actually. both. We're, we're all three working on. <laughs> Look long, at you all happy to be in the middle age. <laughs> hey, you know, <laughs> you're gonna cut this out, right? <laughs> no, this is gonna start with this. <laughs> Speaking of which, should we uh, should we give our brains a little rest here? Sure, sure. Any any last thoughts or questions before we uh, adjourn this episode? Anybody? No, I think anybody. Anybody? I think that was brilliant. You were pretty brilliant. <laughs> you were really brilliant. Bob, actually, Bob was pretty good, too, I mm-hmm. thought. Mike? Not so much. But you no. and I, we're just kind of treading water with these two, so. No. Well, Sorry. we're going to go. We're going to let you all go. Thank Can we you. get a cocktail? Th- th- thank you yeah. to the listener for joining us. We're going to go have a cocktail and stare <laughs> at the lake, and we'll be back with another episode with Valerie Lakin, so stay with us. Ta-ta. And happy writing. <laughs>